Oxygenized Air Institute and Medical Dispensary, 91 South Salina Street, established for the cure of scrofula, catarrh, bronchitis, consumption, neuralgia, dyspepsia, and liver complaints. Professor C.A. Hyde, M.D., and Dr. J.P. Brower will give their personal attention to the treatment of the preceding and other diseases, administering oxygenized air, medical inhalations, local treatment, and the best therapeutical agents. The oxygen, the vital principle of air, is breathed directly into the lungs and through them is carried into the blood, thus reaching all parts of the system at once. Vitalizing the blood, decomposing the impure matter, and expelling it through the pores. The results from this mode of treatment are immediate. Patients do not experiment with it for months to learn whether they are being benefited, but few inhalations are necessary to satisfy anyone of its efficacy. The discoverer, C.L. Blood, M.D., first introduced this system in his practice in 1863, and seeing the extraordinary success he met with, established an Oxygenized Air Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, since which time other physicians have adopted it and opened similar institutions in Providence, Springfield, Portland, and other eastern cities, and have firmly established it to be a substantial, scientific, successful mode of treating diseases. Thus far, it has cured not less than three-quarters of those taking the treatment, the patients being largely composed of those afflicted with the worst forms of disease, having been given up by other physicians. Ladies suffering from disease will find this remedy to reach their troubles at once. The citizens of Syracuse and vicinity are cordially invited to call and examine this mode of treatment. Patients in the country who are unable to visit the office personally are requested to write out a brief history of their symptoms and forward to me. A candid opinion will be given, and, if desired, remedies can be sent by express to your own house. Address Dr. J.P. Brower, 91 South Salina Street, Syracuse, New York. Office hours from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. The citizens of Syracuse and vicinity are invited to call and examine this mode of treatment. Dr. Brower is thoroughly conversant with the application of this remedy. C.L. Blood, M.D., Boston, Massachusetts. We have used oxygenated air in our practice for the last year with complete success and have cured the worst forms of catarrh and a majority of the cases of bronchitis and consumption in their advanced stages. We unqualifiedly pronounce oxygenized air the greatest boon ever yet conferred upon our suffering race. We cordially recommend Dr. Brower, as he is justly entitled to the confidence of all who may require his services. E. Cottle, M.D., L. M. Lee, M.D., Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Hyde is too well known to require any testimonials of character, skill, or ability. He has made the profession of medicine and surgery the only business of his life, and has spent more than thirty years in acquainting himself thoroughly with the best method of curing disease, and has a system of practice peculiarly his own.
He has, habitually, from time to time and year to year, attended our best medical schools and hospitals, thus acquainting himself with all that is new and valuable in the profession. He is a member of the Cayuga County Medical Society, the Erie County Medical Society, and several literary and other societies, and a graduate of two of the best medical colleges in this country, the last of which the subjoined will show. University, New York Medical Department, February 29, 1864. This is to certify that Dr. Charles A. Hyde received the degree of Doctor of Medicine in this institution at the public commencement in March, 1845. Valentine Mott, M.D., L.L.D., Emeritus, Professor of Surgery. Martin Payne, M.D., L.L.D., Professor of Materia Medica and Therapeutics. John W. Draper, M.D., L.L.D., Professor, Chemistry and Physiology, Alfred Post, M.D., Professor, Surgery, etc., W.H. Van Buren, M.D., Professor, Anatomy, John I. Metcalf, M.D., Professor, Practice Medicine, Charles A. Buck, M.D., Professor, Obstetrics, etc., I flew the air with the greatest of ease A daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to Episode 5. That ad you heard at the top was for the Oxygenized Air Institute, and those ads appeared, according to FultonHistory.com, 576 times in Syracuse newspapers in 1868 and 1869 only. Now remember, whenever I give you numbers like that, that's just the cases where the text was successfully scanned into the computer. In other words, the optical character recognition is only as good as the source, and it's not very good at guessing even when the source is really good. And almost all of these newspapers are third-generation copies of microfilm, so they're terribly blurry. So the guess that the computer makes is usually just a hash of nonsense characters. So the upshot of this is when you're running a search on Fulton History, the number of hits you get is probably a small fraction of the number of hits that you would get if the optical character recognition were perfect. For example, I search for Yemen, my last name, Y-E-M-A-N, and I come back with, say, a couple of hundred hits, but I'm missing however many hundred hits there are out there where the computer thought that it said Y O M. XN or whatever. Wow, that was articulate. Well, anyway, it's probably going to be more enjoyable than listening to what I have in store for you. 
where in 1868, just a couple of weeks before the first impeachment of a U.S. president, which means tensions are high and political conflicts are batshit insane. In August of the previous year, President Johnson had dismissed Stanton as Secretary of War because Stanton wanted to prosecute Reconstruction relatively strenuously, and Johnson was a white supremacist who wanted none of that. Johnson had replaced him with Grant. A couple of weeks before this, Grant had just stepped down when Congress told Stanton to come back to his position as Secretary of War. And there's been this whole kerfuffle filling the papers about how Johnson supposedly told Grant to not give the office over to Stanton to resist him, to tell Johnson before he did anything, and Grant ended up just saying, here, I'm obeying the will of Congress. So there's been this whole gossipy brouhaha over who said what, the Democrats siding with Johnson, the Republicans siding with Grant. At the state level, you've got a bunch of conventions trying to ratify state constitutions. Of course, the ex-rebels are intimidating whites and freedmen at the polls, which are in part preventing the elections from happening. You've got military rule over the South trying to impose some order amid this chaos. It's a mess. And in the midst of this, we have the Syracuse elections, especially the mayoral election. The articles surrounding this election are the most histrionic and partisan I've seen in all of the reading I've done in these newspapers, and that's saying something. I've chosen to read several days' worth of these articles in their entirety, even though I'll probably lose some folks who will do a big TLDR on the whole affair, because I feel they're important. I feel they should be known. We need to understand our history and the lies we've been taught about it. We need to hear this. There are a lot of these articles, so I'm going to split them over multiple episodes. This one deals just with the preliminary shots fired by the two Republican newspapers against Green. The first shot in this war of ink was fired on page two of the Syracuse New York Daily Standard on February 14, 1868. A candidate. In the name of the loyal masses of the city of Syracuse, we thank the Democratic Party for its nomination of yesterday. They have drawn the issue clear, sharp, and well-defined. They have taken the contest out of municipal matters and have elevated it to the dignity of a contest concerning great principles. There is no man in all this city so mole-eyed as not to see, so thick-headed as not to understand, that the name of Charles Andrews is synonymous with the loyalty, the patriotism, the progress aggressive tendencies of the Republic, and that the name of John A. Green, Jr., stands for all that sympathizes with treason and is instinct with disloyalty. Neither of the names are new names. We all know them well, and we are all gifted with memories. Against John A. Green's personal character, we have not a word to say. We respect the energy which has made him a successful merchant and given him commanding influence in commercial circles. We sympathize with the generous impulses which have made, and deservedly made, him so many friends in the social circle. 
but his public acts are public property. These we have a right to discuss when he presents himself for our suffrages. What these have been, it needs no labored editorial to show. From the time when Sumter's gun first fired the heart of the nation until Johnson laid down his arms, General Greene was conspicuously and unreservedly opposed to the national cause. It was not out of his abundant means that his struggling country found aid. It was not through his clarion voice that it found a single word of cheer. It was not his hand that raised the stars and stripes upon his mansion's roof. But it was his hand which wrote the peace letter of 1861, and his instrumentality which brought the martyred Vallandigham before a Syracuse audience. Of all the men who opposed the war, of all the men who embarrassed the government, of all the men who cried for a craven peace, he was the most notorious, not only in this city, but in this state. John A. Green, Jr. was bold and defiant in the enunciation of his sentiments. He did not even pretend to be a loyal man. He had almost a national reputation as a copperhead. He is an active and unscrupulous politician. He is a leader among the Democrats. He is a representative man of the abominable principles they cherish. In his nomination, the democracy of Syracuse has taken the bull by the horns. It virtually says, We will put our most obnoxious man against your best man and try conclusions squarely upon principle. So let it be. We rejoice at it. We may admire the stupid bravery of our enemies, but we cannot praise their discretion. Our nominee is unexceptionable in every way and is emphatically an exponent of our principles. Now let the battle rage. Let the first gun for freedom come from the central city. It would be a lasting disgrace if John A. Green, with such a record as he has, should triumph now. It would be heralded all over the state to our humiliation. Let us show our brethren elsewhere that we are as valiant for the right as in the days of the war, when the loyal Andrews was at our city's head, and John A. Green would have received as ignominious a defeat as did his friend Vallandigham in Ohio. Wow, that came out of nowhere, at least from my perspective. That was quite a broadside, yeah? Now, let's move forward one day to February 15th and go over to the Syracuse Journal, the other Republican newspaper in town. Their invective against Green starts on page 4. Now, for context, I'm going to read you another article on that same page about elections in the South. A special Washington dispatch to the Evening Post is as follows. Thomas W. Conway, who has traveled extensively through the South, has just written a letter to Dr. Thomas W. Tullock, Secretary of the Union Republican Congressional Committee, giving his opinion on Reconstruction and his reasons for the failure of the whole business, unless Congress shall pass some such measure as the bill now before the Senate Judiciary Committee, making majorities of the votes cast sufficient to ratify state constitutions. He states that the rebels are determined to defeat any plan of reconstruction coming from the present Congress, especially if the right to vote is given to the Negroes, that this class is thoroughly organized and act in concert all over the South, that they have entire control of the Associated Press and its machinery in the South, thus giving them a great advantage over their opponents. 
that they unite together to proscribe unionists, both white and black, that vote for the Congressional Plan of Reconstruction, thus creating a reign of terror and preventing men from going to the polls, that, notwithstanding the poverty of the South, large sums of money have been raised for the purpose of defending the Congressional Plan of Reconstruction. Mr. Conway adds that the spirit of self-sacrifice and devotion to the lost cause is as great in the South now among implacable rebels as it was during the war. So that provides necessary context. That's what Syracusans are hearing about affairs in the South. There must have been a lot of fear and paranoia and dispiritedness over the direction in which the country was moving, if any. Now we're going to skip over to column three. This is where the screeds against Green really pick up steam. How soldiers will vote. The Republican Union ticket merits and will receive the support of all soldiers who are true to their honorable records. Two of its candidates served in the war, Captain Listman and Lieutenant Gilbert, and were maimed for life by rebel bullets. There are no representatives of the soldier element on the Democratic ticket, but that ticket is made up of bitter and unrelenting enemies of the soldiers and the cause they served. Charles Andrews was the soldier's friend and supporter throughout the war. John A. Green was the soldier's enemy, persistently and unqualifiedly, and kept up a fire in the rear that prolonged the war and cost thousands of valuable lives and millions of dollars. Charles Andrews represents the loyal sentiment of our city and was earnest and indefatigable in his services for the soldiers, in promoting the raising and organizing of regiments, and in providing for the families of volunteers. John A. Green is the representative of the disloyal and traitorous element in this community. He did nothing to aid the raising of troops. He did nothing to support the families of volunteers. He organized and managed peace movements. And with brazen effrontery, he proclaimed his sympathy with rebellion and treason. He rejoiced over Union defeats and mourned over the victories of the Union armies. Soldiers, honor and consistency dictate that you vote for Charles Andrews and do all in your power to defeat John A. Green. It is your duty and should be your pleasure to vote for Andrews. It would be your everlasting disgrace to vote for Green. A black record. The political record of John A. Green during the eventual period when the existence of the nation was imperiled and her patriotic sons were risking limb and life in her defense is as black as the most atrocious offending against country and countrymen could make it. In all those momentous five years, there is not a single redeeming act in his public career. His impudence and effrontery now in daring to ask his fellow citizen to place him in the position of chief magistrate of this city is little short of satanic. His election, if such a result were possible, would be a never-to-be-effaced blot and slur upon the fair name of the central city. Syracuse has had democratic mayors, but it has never had a mayor with such a black and damnable record as John A. Green's. May the votes of loyal men, who would virtuously and patriotically spurn political association with Vallandigham and Bright, or with Davis and Toombs, protect our good city from such disgrace and infamy.
Read the record. We ask war Democrats, Unionists, and Republicans to read the record of John A. Green during the war to suppress the rebellion. There is nothing presented therein but that was at the time known to the whole community, but its perusal now, when Green asks to be elected mayor of the city, will revive the memories of his unpatriotic and disloyal conduct during the war and will call up afresh hundreds of facts and circumstances that will be in themselves satisfactory reasons why no elector who loves his country and loathes her enemies will hesitate for a moment to cast his vote and influence against John A. Green. The Police Force The present odious police force, whose inefficiency is a byword and a reproach to the present Democratic City administration, was slated by John A. Green. If Green shall be elected mayor, this police will be kept in office, and the carnival of criminals will continue for another year. The former administrations of Mayor Andrews were distinguished by the efficiency of his police appointments, then less in number than now. All voters who wish for an improvement in the police department by the appointment of good men who will be faithful and efficient officers will vote for Charles Andrews. Good Government The citizens of Syracuse, taxpayers especially, do not want the city government for the coming year to be run as a party machine. It will be so run by John A. Green if he is elected to the mayoralty. With Charles Andrews as mayor, an efficient, economical, and satisfactory administrator of city affairs without undue political bias will be the result. All who want a good city government, not a mere political machine for personal aggrandizement, will therefore vote for Charles Andrews. I'm going to stop there. Believe it or not, that was the preliminary invective. Next time, we'll wade into the really ugly stuff. That's when the journal starts printing quotes taken from Green's articles in The Courier. All this and more on the next episode of Historic Headlines. Thanks for listening. And until then, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he's stolen away.